Other things can be implemented very quickly. For example, 10C, empowering UNODC with stronger capacities in research, which is very important. Welcome to a new episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. What you're about to hear is an interview between Matthew Stevenson and Thomas Stelzer. The interview takes a deep dive into the recent report by the UN High-Level Panel on International Financial Accountability, Transparency and Integrity. We link to it in the show notes so you can follow along with the specifics. The two also mention UNCAC. To make sure that everybody can follow, this means the UN Convention Against Corruption. As you heard in the intro snippet, one of the concrete issues that the report demands are more research on anti-corruption and a comprehensive repository to make it easier to find corruption-related research. Good news is that something very close to the repository that Thomas has in mind exists already. One of the benefits of the podcast is that we get to learn about all the great work by the different organizations working on anti-corruption. This way, we found out that Global Integrity, in collaboration with the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network, has recently published the Anti-Corruption Corpus for Corruption Researchers and Practitioners. We also link to that in the show notes. If you want to get such updates, we invite you to follow us on Twitter at KickbackGAP, where we shared the release note of the database. But now, without further ado, here is the interview. This is Matthew Stevenson, and my guest for today's episode is Thomas Stelzer, who is the Dean of the International Anti-Corruption Academy, based in Luxembourg, Austria, and also a panelist on the UN's high-level panel on international financial integrity, transparency, and integrity for achieving the 2030 agenda. And that's a bit, a bit of a mouthful. So this is uh, generally known as the FACTI panel, F-A-C-T-I. The FACTI panel released its final report uh, this past February. Uh, the report contains both a discussion of the problem of international financial, excuse me, illicit international financial flows, as well as a set of 14 recommendations, some of which are broken down into sub-recommendations, for addressing this problem. And it's obviously a problem that, while not Uh, limited exclusively to corruption, anti-corruption, is of great interest to the anti-corruption community. So I am just delighted to be able to welcome you, Dean Stelzer, to this episode of the podcast and to have the opportunity to speak with you about the FACTI panel and its report. Great pleasure. So perhaps I can, I can start out our conversation by asking you uh, to talk a little bit about your own background. I understand you had a, a long diplomatic career, before you assume your current position as the Dean of the International Anti-Corruption Academy, it would be great if you could talk a little bit about your background, especially as it relates to corruption and anti-corruption issues, and maybe also tell our listeners a little bit more about the FACTI panel itself, how it was organized, what its objectives were, and how you and your fellow panelists went about your work. Thank you. My background is mostly in multilateral diplomacy. And about two decades ago, I was the Austrian permanent representative to the United Nations in Vienna. And during those years, I was one of the negotiators of UNCAC, of the United Nations Convention Against Corruption, which is the first legal instrument that gave us a real structure to fight corruption efficiently on the basis of the rule of law. And uh, in fact, my affinity to corruption goes back a little bit further, about one year previous to the start of the negotiations, when I chaired a session of the Crime Commission uh, in Vienna, uh, the United Nations Commission on Crime Prevention and Criminal Justice, which adopted a resolution stating that corruption is a structural impediment to sustainable development. And at that time, I didn't really recognize how that stuck with me and that how that became a beacon of my future professional career. So subsequently, we negotiated the, the UNCAC, the convention in Vienna, And then a few years later, I became a little bit frustrated, quite frustrated with the slow pace of implementation. Many of these UN instruments, these conventions, require a lot of energy 
to be negotiated. UN member states come together with all the delegations, they put a lot of work in, but quite often it happens that after negotiation, the negotiators don't have the energy left to implement the result. So many of the UN conventions tend to become dead wood afterwards because there's no further implementation. And something like this seemed to happen also with UNCAC. About five years after entering into force of the convention, I became quite frustrated with the slow pace of implementation of the convention, which, which I always considered a very useful instrument, not only because I was one of the lead negotiators and my own signatures on the convention on behalf of Austria, but because I saw how useful it was. And at this time, we considered how could we facilitate implementation of the convention. And our idea was to try to establish a global program against corruption under the auspices of the UNODC in Vienna, you know, the UN, United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime in Vienna. So our idea in about 2007 was to come up with a global program uh, which would bring together political will and then break down the process of implementing the, the convention and fighting corruption efficiently. Uh, coming up with a global anti-corruption architecture, who will do what to implement the global program. That didn't happen because uh, before the idea could be brought to fruition, uh, I was called to New York and I joined uh, the United Nations in New York, Assistant Secretary General for Policy Coordination, and I left the process. And uh, my colleagues and friends continued in Vienna and uh, established what a few years later became IACA. Very different from our original idea. Uh, IACA was established outside the UN system uh, in a small village close to Vienna, Luxembourg, as a primarily academic institution. So when I was called to take over IACA last year, I found an institution uh, which I would like to compare to a, a dramatically undervalued commodity, something uh, that had a lot of potential, but which had not lived up to its potential. What it did bring to the table, and it does bring to the table with IACA, is with the only international organization, which is also an institution of higher learning, we are authorized to award academic degrees. And our two master's programs in corruption, one a little bit more academic, the other one more for practitioners, in which we have been training uh, practitioners from all over the world, uh, trying to offer them technical assistance, capacity building, so they are equipped better to strengthen in their own countries anti-corruption systems, criminal law systems and other systems, to fight corruption, excluding impunity, more efficiently on the basis of the rule of law, as foreseen in UCAC. So this is what we have been doing. So with our two master's programs uh, in conjunction with the complementary summer academies have created about 3,000 alumni in the last years in 161 countries. So each one of these alumni is a, a possible multiplier who has learned how to fight corruption better and also has, was in contact with us. So by strengthening our alumni network, by working with our alumni, we hope to teach the future teachers and to try to create networks in as many countries as possible to achieve the three famous steps. First, help people to see corruption. Second, help them understand why fighting corruption is now a shared interest. And third step, enable them to do so by offering technical assistance. So this is what we've been doing. Now, ever since the, we have negotiated UNCAC, until now, the landscape has totally changed. When I remember 20 years ago, uh, the fight against corruption was, was very marginal. You know, corruption has been there as long as mankind is there, but it was conceived as a, as a shadow, which is inherent in every society. You can't fight it, it's there, you can't get rid of it. But only with UNCAC, suddenly we gave ourselves a concrete legal instrument, concrete provisions to fight corruption efficiently. So it took some time until UNCAC got track, but it did. And in the meantime, something remarkable happened. Uh, Matthew, in 2015, the United Nations adopted the Agenda 2030, the 17 Sustainable Development Goals. You know, I remember very well at Rio Plus 20, 
2011, uh, when we got together and uh, tried to conceptualize the future SDGs, which were contained in the outcome paper, the future we want in Nuce, and then were articulated and, and uh, as the 17 SDGs negotiated by the community of states and adopted by consensus. And this is, of course, the blueprint for the future of the world. Implementation of the 17 SDGs will make, will keep the world livable for all of us. We'll make it better, more equal, more just, more equitable. We'll provide access to clean water sanitation. We'll prevent climate, the heating of climate. All these issues that all these global issues we are, we are discussing all the time are all contained in the 17 SDGs. Now, the whole global agenda is broken up into in fact, 15 SDGs, because seven is finance, 17 is financing, and 16 is the framework. 16 is building good governance as a precondition for implementing the SDGs. Now, SDG 16 uh, contains as target five, the fight against corruption. And with that, corruption has moved to the center of the global agenda as a cross-cutting issue. Because when we're looking at the global agenda of the world. With these enormous amounts of money, we can't even quantify them because we don't have clear numbers. And as you know, we can't measure corruption very well. But estimates are about uh, $1.5 trillion a year, which are siphoned away by corruption from productive economies. Amounts of money which cannot be compensated for, neither by direct investment nor by official development assistance, ODA, nor by remittances. So without success in fighting corruption, we will not be able to raise the money necessary for the implementation of the SDGs. So there is a truism, a, a narrative, which is more and more accepted, that success in the fight against corruption is a precondition for the implementation of the SDGs. And now let's connect with our FACTI panel. Because this is now the, the next building block. You know, we have the SDGs. And, you know, you know as well, you know, that in the last years, the international agenda, the structures that we have been building up during the last decades was dramatically weakened. So the UN has to look at what can it do in this more and more complicated world. What is their key? What's the base? And that's the SDGs. So this is what the UN have been very much concentrating on implementation of this as the centerpiece of UN actions, politics, politics, and activities. But the question is, how do we finance that? How do we finance the transition from fossil to sustainable energy? How do we finance bringing uh, energy, clean water, schooling, access to medicine to everybody on this globe? Where do we waste the money? So, and in this context now, there are two things happening. First, the United Nations has decided to hold a special session of the General Assembly on corruption, UNGAS 21, most likely in June, COVID restrictions permitting. So the preparatory process for this uh, UN UNGAS 21 is a huge opportunity because it galvanizes political will it brings all the delegations together to think, what do we want to get out of this special session? What do we want in the outcome document? And this is what we have been working on here in Vienna now, the member states. So we are now, you know, in, there's still, you know, negotiations going on, drafting is going on. It's too early to say what will be in this document. Uh, you know, we have to be realistic. You know, the, the document will not contain a future global anti-corruption architecture, but it might be able to define the parameters within which this global architecture can develop. So that would be very much. Now, many of the ideas that we have been analyzing and defining as, as conducive for the fight against corruption are being filtered into this process now. Technic assistance, education against corruption, for example, is a very important issues. You know, very recently, just last year, the G20 have introduced the topic of education in the fight against corruption into the working group against corruption. So that's very new. And during the Saudi presidency and the, the successful Italian presidency 
has confirmed that they will pursue this track and will uh, build this. And then we have, of course, now the UNGAS process. So this is a very conducive environment. The FACTI panel also complements these efforts. The FACTI panel was established by the President of the General Assembly and the President of the ECOSOC, Economic and Social Council of the United Nations. They, we, upon their authority, they, they, they promoted and they conceptualized the panel, which was then adopted by the General Assembly. So bringing together 17 global experts to look into the question, how can we limit illicit flows to scale up tax revenue of UN member states that in the best case scenario can be used for implementation of these SDGs. That was the, the, the basic question uh, we were looking at. Of course, in the context of SDG implementation, this was always something, our guiding principle, because you always have to ask yourself, what are you doing for? Cui bono is the old Roman set. And the idea was always in our mind, how can we facilitate implementation of SDGs by mapping the weaknesses, the lacunae of the global system that allows that money is diverted by tax evasion, for example, by bribery, by corruption, you know, from the budget of member states lacking from their tax uh, intake. So this was the starting point. And also to bring into the process all the stakeholders this is a cross-cutting idea, access to decision-making, you know, the consciousness you can, that you can only receive sustainable results by bringing everybody to the table, by creating shared ownership in a process. You know, this is the big secret of multilateral negotiations. So this is what we tried from the very beginning. You know, we involved all the stakeholders, member states, civil society, academia, international institutions, think tanks, and they all brought forward their ideas which we considered. And many of them you can find in one way or the other in our report. Now, this is not a negotiated report. You know, it brings together many ideas which are out there and which will strengthen the global system in the fight against illicit flows. So this was the process which just finished uh, two weeks, a few weeks ago. And last week, the final report was introduced uh, in New York and presented to the world. So this is the first phase of the fact that is now concluded. And now, but I guess we want to talk about this a little bit later. Uh, the question is, what do we do with this report? You know, how does this report become relevant? I definitely want to follow up with you maybe a little bit later on in our conversation about that issue of, of taking the report forward and the challenges of implementation, which, of course, you discussed earlier in, our, in your um, description of your own background in the context of instruments like UNCAC. Before we get there, I would love to talk a little bit more about some of the substantive recommendations in the report, which are very interesting. I'm gonna, I hope that in, uh, when the podcast goes up, when the episode goes up in the show notes, we can include links to both the report itself um, and also the executive summary for those who don't have a chance to read the full report. I've had a chance to look at both of these documents and they're uh, really fascinating and definitely provide a solid foundation for a substantive conversation about how to take these issues forward. We obviously don't have time to go through the report and its recommendations you know, one by one. So I just picked out a couple that particularly struck me as especially interesting and relevant to the anti-corruption community that I wanted to ask you a bit more about with respect to their substance and also if you can provide some insight into the panel's thinking about the direction that you chose to go. One thing that was, was um, very interesting to me about not all of your recommendations, but several of the recommendations included calls for um, global standards, for common international standards on certain issues that are currently uh, addressed principally by individual jurisdictions uh, in, in possibly very different ways. And two jumped out at me especially, and I'll, I'll mention the, the, the numbers uh, for those who are following along at home. Recommendation 1B focuses on settlements in cross-border corruption cases. So in the US, it would be Foreign Corrupt Practices Act cases, or in the UK, UK Bribery Act cases, and so forth. That recommendation uh, says that the international community 
should develop and agree on common international standards for settlements in those cases. Then recommendation six addresses the very important issues of uh, issue of the enablers or facilitators of illicit financial flows, the, the financial professionals, lawyers, accountants, and others who often participate in either through direct complicity with or negligence in overseeing the, the movement of illicit funds across borders. And with respect to recommendation six, uh, there was again in the FACTI panel report a call for global standards for financial, legal, and accounting professionals that would then be adopted by individual governments through appropriate national legislation. So I had a few questions about this. One thing that really struck me here is that the FACTI panel in both of these contexts called for the adoption of global standards for common standards, but didn't actually say very much substantively about what those standards should be, right? Elsewhere in the report, there's discussion of sometimes very specific detail about we should do this, the international community should do this specific thing. In these contexts, the report calls for the creation of a common international standard, but actually says very little about the specific content of those global standards. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about why that was in terms of the approach the panel took and whether you have any thoughts that you might want to add on to what the panel already says about what the uh, specific standards ought to be in one or both of these areas. Yeah, but if you look at the panel, at the report, you know, we talked about underlying values, you know, which should guide all the work and the future standards. Uh, this values accountability, legitimacy, transparency, fairness. Development of global standards. You know, they, they, we are not the first ones to call for that, of course. You know, I mean, this is uh, even UNCA calls for international cooperation to bring forward the process. You know, cooperation. If you look at at provision, for example, Chapter Five of the UNCA on 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 uh, repatriation of funds. Uh, here you need standards, you know, because you know it is not enough to have the legal provisions there. You have to implement them. So how does how does this look like? You know, 15 years after entry to force the convention, we haven't really advanced here. You know, in spite of all the initiatives, the STAR initiative, there's a lot of work being done. We don't even know yet which preconditions we need from the legal point to set process in motion. We don't really know what is the information standard we need and how should we share it. So there is a lot of questions here. We know we need these agreed standards to move forward. But by accepting that there is no global definition for corruption and uh, to leave it the definition and the criminalization of corruption uh, to the member states nationally, each country has to criminalize corruption by its own criminal law system. And these definitions are further more restricted and more generous. You know, they're not equal in hardly any country. They are national. But at the same time, there is the, you need to create a certain uh, shared understanding, which has to be enhanced and grows and grows until it becomes workable. We talk about global standards in taxes. We even, the report suggests a UN conven tax convention, which is very ambitious, of course, you know, and which is, which is very pragmatic also at the same time. You know, we have, we have a UN tax committee, which is not really intergovernmental uh, structure. You know, it's expert bodies, which don't have that much impact. They come up with, uh, with excellent guidelines but there is really no implementation process. So uh, how do we forge a structure? You know, how do we make this expert body into an intergovernmental structure, which then will prepare maybe negotiation of the, tax uh, of the convention in which we have to come together to develop the global standards? So from a faculty panel member, I can think very well about global standards. You know, we need equitable taxes, but each country is deciding itself what is a just tax system. This is very political. You know, of course, it's also economic. If you look at the externalities of corruption, of all the other illicit flows, you can pretty much defend the, uh, and define the direction we were going. But in the end, the, the decisions are very much political. So 
standards dominated by interests, by understanding, by advocacy, by many different inputs. And it has to be a process of, of increasing advocacy to bring decision makers together to understand why do we need global standards? You know, why does it hurt if we don't have them? Why does it hurt a country if the adjacent country, neighboring country, has totally different standards in taxes, for example? One country has a flat tax rate of 20%. The other country has a, a very progressive tax system uh, to finance its, its, its social uh, safety networks. And this is within a region. If you look at the European Union, 27 independent states trying to grow together step by step with all the cultures and all the different ideas, they have not achieved a, a common tax system. So there's a lot of tax competition. One country taxes multilateral companies a very low tax rate and uh, gains a strong comp comparative advantage through that. Is fined by all the others for a lack of solidarity, for standing out, says maybe I don't care. Our profits are big enough that we can afford paying our fines and we still continue. You know, so there are so many issues where we, where we need to work here to come up uh, with global systems. What we can we came to the understanding that we need uh, a much better global governance. Also, uh, in the field of, of taxes, you know, if you look at the report, it was overwhelmingly directed to taxes. Uh, bribery and corruption gets much less space than the taxes. So I learned a lot in the report. I'm not a tax uh, expert, but I listened now for one year to tax experts from coming from very different regions. You know, and bringing in the different experiences. So that was a very illuminating uh, process. But if you look, you know, some of the recommendations, you know, we tried in the beginning, we thought, how can we reflect all the recommendations in one report without taking sides, without giving preference, but by being realistic. So we, we discussed something which in the end got a little bit lost to group the recommendations in timelines. Fruits to be harvested quickly, mid-term challenges and long-term challenges. But we didn't want to exclude anything. So these timelines are not so clear in the report now as they were in the beginning. So you find a big mixture. You know, you find, for example, you know, you find, for example, one, one suggestion uh, extends the ICC mandate to corruption. So I'm not there to judge this, but it would be very surprising if this would be a low-hanging fruit, to be realistic. But on the other hand, you know, it's, it's well worth considering. Other things can be implemented very quickly. For example, 10C, empowering UNODC with stronger capacities in research, which is very important. You know, I'm a strong believer on, on fact-based decision-making, but where do you get the facts from? From research. Now, we have a long way to go. You know, you're a researcher. There's so much research being done in the field of corruption, but there's no repository. There are programs, academic programs of international organizations, but they have not yet even yielded a repository for global research being done, which is, you know, uh, should be a very pragmatic step. In fact, we are doing this now. We're just hiring our senior researcher, and the first task he's getting is to build a global repository of, of anti-corruption research so that everybody who needs an, a response to a question just clicks himself or herself through a homepage to the result. It's very easy to do, but nobody did it. So there is a lot of issues which you can do very easily immediately and which will have a big impact. So uh, this is when we read and analyze the recommendations of the report. It, it's good enough to take some out and implement them. You know, I see this progress in the fight against corruption a little bit like a big puzzle on the wall. Uh, some visionaries have the, the end picture in their head, but the wall is still pretty empty. So you have to put pieces into this puzzle here and there. It doesn't really matter where you begin. If each piece which fits in the end complements the final picture that you want to achieve. So you can take out the recommendation and implement them one by one, coherently, piecemeal, as long as they contribute to the progress to achieve a system which is accountable, legitimate, transparent. You know, these are the principles of the fight against corruption. 
So again, so so much there, so many interesting insights. I do, I do though want to circle back, if I may, to my question about common international standards uh, that appear in things like 1B and, and 6 of the recommendations. And I want to pick up on something you said just a few moments ago in the course of, of, of addressing my initial question about this, which is that, well, we need to explain to people why common standards, why global standards are important. And I want to press you on that. Why are common standards or global standards important? And just to be clear, I understood the report to be recommending something more concrete than articulating general values like transparency and accountability and so forth. The language of the recommendation says things, for example, like the international community should develop and agree on common international standards for settlements in cross-border corruption cases. And similarly, the language in recommendation six makes it sound like there's, there's a supposed to be a negotiation and an agreement on a common set of standards for regulating financial and legal professionals. And let's put tax and tax harmonization to one side. You're exactly right. Much of the report focuses on tax issues because I focus on corruption issues. That's what I'm going to mainly talk about. So let's put that to the side and talk about um, those two examples. It certainly seems plausible that common international standards in these contexts would help, but it's not completely obvious, right? There are at least two common critiques of the attempt to articulate common international standards on these kinds of issues. And let me articulate the two critiques. And I would love to hear your response, either in your individual capacity or on behalf of the FACTI panel, whichever is more appropriate, to these two lines of response. One line of response is that jurisdictions are sufficiently different in terms of their legal backgrounds and political systems and so forth, that if you try to go beyond articulating general high-level principles like accountability, adequate deterrence, and so forth to articulate common standards, you'll be imposing rules on one system that might not be appropriate. So an example here that maybe builds on recommendation 1B is with respect to the settlement process for cross-border bribery systems, the US system and the UK system are in many ways very different. The US system relies much more on prosecutors and prosecutorial discretion with a relatively limited role for judges, whereas the UK system has a much more active role for judges very early in the process. It's not immediately obvious that it would be a good idea to recommend that the US follow the UK model, the UK follow the US model. You, and you could multiply the examples, but you see the basic point. With res the other line of critique of trying to articulate and develop common international standards that are more specific than you know, everybody should have a good system that achieves the, these high-level results, is that as you would well know as a diplomat who's worked on things like UNCAC, there's a kind of lowest common denominator phenomenon where if you get 160 countries together and say, let's figure out what the standard should be for financial consultants and accountants and lawyers, you're not going to get broad consensus uh, if you try to impose the ri most rigorous, significant kinds of limitations if you want to try to get broad consensus, near universal consensus, you're going to end up with a watered down set of standards that might end up actually making things worse because now countries feel like they can adopt the kind of lowest common denominator bare minimum requirements and say, hey, look, we're doing what the international consensus standards say with respect to regulating accountants and lawyers, and it could lead to a setback. Um, now, I'm not endorsing necessarily either of these lines of critique, but I'm raising them because um, the case for common international standards is not self-evident, right? Sometimes they can help, but, but not always. And so it would be great if you could say a little bit more, again, either in your official capacity as a faculty me panel member or otherwise just in your own capacity about why you don't think these lines of critique apply to the particular context that I was raised, that we were talking about in, in the context of this report, the, the cross-border corruption settlement issue and the regulation of enablers and facilitators issue. Yeah, I mean, these are very complex issues, you know, and of course, you know, there, there are many different approaches to them. Uh, one of them is the academic approach, you know, where you can conceptualize an ideal world, you know, with accepted standards everywhere. And then you have the world of the negotiators, the pragmatists like, like me, for example, where I look at the situation and see what is the next step which is feasible. And then we map and see what is going on in which areas. And if you look, uh, for example, you know, UNCAC is not the only convention. If we look at the anti-bribery convention of the OECD, for example, which is much further in regards to implementation, but which has by far fewer members. 
So this is like in the UN, we always want, want one of the big question was, you know, how can we, how can we legitimize the power of a group of 20 for the 194? And in our, in our discussion, we discussed a lot is how can we include in the process of the 55 at the OECD, all the others that are standing out and give them also a voice because they are confronted with the results. That's true. You have the anti-private convention, uh, which is being implemented, uh, which has enormous uh, effect because globally acting companies can only work in certain economies if they adhere to the standards imposed by the implementation process of certain conventions. So this is a, a big patchwork right now, which is very uneven. And the question is, how do we balance that in waves? Well, go back. You know, your question was very interesting. Uh, two very different systems, United States and Great Britain. I, I don't think you will bring one of them to adapt the system of the other. And there are many other systems out there either. But we don't need that. The question is, how much does a system uh, adhere to the, to the underlying uh, principles and values? So, for example, if we build an anti-corruption system in a certain country, we know by what it has to be governed. Transparency, independency, uh, division of powers. That's important. So we also know institutions that we need to make a system efficient. For example, an independent anti-corruption prosecutor's office, which many countries have now, but that's not enough. If, that, if there is no division of powers and the prosecutor is not independent, dominated by political interests, or dependent on some other structure, or financially not sufficiently equipped to do its work, to employ enough men or women power to pursue their, their cases. So there's a lot of, of issues there already. Then, you know, the question transparency. One of the issues right now that we have been discussing in, in Europe is financing of parties. But there, there are many, many different issues. There's, of course, the laws, you know, what you have to lay open. Uh, who the, the certain uh, instances of the, of the legal system monitor, you know, these accountability standards. But then, of course, there's also transparency issues, you know, what is made available. And then, uh, you know, the human right to information, which, which is a huge issue here and has a big effect. And here, for example, UNCAC is very weak. You know, the whistleblower provision in UNCAC is, is uh, to consider You know, that's very weak, but we know whistleblowers are a very important issue in the fight against corruption. And they would, had we listened to whistleblowers better, we would have saved a lot of money in the last 10 years. In Germany, the big wire cards uh, scandal, for example, and others, you know. In fact, whistleblowers are prosecuted. So there are a lot of different issues, and I don't think you have to have the same provisions everywhere. You have to have the same standards. This is what we need to get. You know, we have to get... Decision makers understand that certain standards are necessary to provide viable systems to exclude bribery, anti-corruption, tax evasion. I mean, here at IACA, you know, we look and we have 80 members here, and each one of our members has totally different standards. So what we try to do is we try to provide technical assistance to our member states to help them implement UNCAC. This is our purpose, but it's demand-driven. So we have to analyze what each, what each of the member states needs and wants. And you know, through working bilateral member states, we can raise uh, the global level uh, of norms and of understanding of norms, implementation of norms. We come back to our asset recovery. You know, this is a very complex case, of course, and highly politically, but extremely under scrutiny, you know, globally, politically, by those who look at UNCAC. You know, will it succeed Uh, how do we get the countries to really repatriate the assets which have been located? We always knew where the money was. You know. How does the international cooperation work here? You know, what is it, enough international cooperation? Where is the knowledge that we have, can make available? There is a, very, there's a small handful of highly paid lawyers who have expertise in these areas, which might not be affordable for the countries that need this expertise. So who is pooling this knowledge? under what uh, legal provisions and, and structures we have been building. We are entering a highly stratified system with a certain vision how it should look like 
in the best circumstances, developing norms in the framework of a global convention. But the way to get there is a, is a pretty different path. You know, it's decades. So your question, you know, of legal, of, of global norms uh, is an extremely complex one. So we have the provisions in our reports that will be read by everybody differently. This is why we try to explain. This is the process we're in right now. Advocate our report. We have the report, and now we have to bring it to those who, who use, who will benefit, hopefully, from this report. Help them to understand the norms better. And then also help them to see pragmatically how pieces of it can be channeled into the global mechanisms, like, for example, UNGA's preparatory process. It's a very viable mechanism right now. And we have an open window for three months until June, when the uh, UNGAS will take, most likely take place. So this has to work now on many different levels. You know, we have, uh, we have the report was sent to heads of states. So hopefully they will read it, or at least the advisors will read it uh, and understand it. But also we have to work with the diplomats in Vienna who negotiate that. You know, I'm optimistic that this report can have an impact, a guidance, can help people to understand the issues better, the fragmentation, and what needs to be done. But how to do it, you know, that's then the technical assistance uh, we have to we have to try to, to, to provide to everybody. So that's very helpfully clarifying, in especially insofar as it sounds like when uh, the particular recommendations to which I was referring call for common international standards. I take it from your answer, the standards that the report envisioned are at a pretty high level of generality, the importance of things like accountability and adequate deterrence and fairness and so forth, as opposed to um, very particular and specific uh, recommendations with regard to how to regulate lawyers or how the settlement process should be uh, overseen or not overseen by the judiciary. And, and so that's that's a very helpful, again, clarification for what exactly the report is calling for in those recommendations. It does naturally, I think, lead into my next question or, or, or set of questions, because while with respect to those recommendations, the report is calling for global standards articulated at a fairly high level of generality, the report is also striking because in some places it, it, it has very specific recommendations, which is, I think, laudable because many, as you know, many international reports of this kind, everything stays at a very high level where, you know, no one could possibly disagree with saying that everyone should be good and everyone should be accountable. Um, but the report has, again, a, a several uh, interesting, more specific recommendations. We don't have time to talk about any of them or even most of them. I want to ask you about one or two, though, that, that really struck me in terms of the way the report addressed them and, and to ask you relatively um, particular focused questions about, about those. So one that really um, uh, struck me as quite important was recommendation um, 3A, which calls for all countries to create a centralized registry for holding beneficial ownership information on all uh, legal vehicles. By uh, that, that language, I think in the United States, we would say corporate entities or companies or, or legal persons. Um, as you know, in the United States, which has traditionally been not, not good at all on this issue, finally, just earlier this year, the United States Congress enacted as part of the Defense Authorization Bill, the Corporate Transparency Act, which creates a registry uh, but not one that's public. And it's the public, the question of public registries that I really wanted to ask about, maybe press you on a little bit, because while there's widespread consensus among people who work on this issue that every country should at least have a, a centralized registry with beneficial ownership information that's accessible to law enforcement, the more controversial question, at least among people who work in this area, as you know, is whether the registry should be public as I believe they currently are in the UK, and as the EU's uh, money, anti-money laundering, most recent anti-money laundering directive uh, calls for eventually in the EU, or whether uh, to follow what's currently, I guess, the US model, and that followed by some other jurisdictions of having a registry uh, that's available to government and certain institutions conducting due diligence, but not generally. So I thought there was something really interesting in how the report discusses this issue and then the recommendation itself. So I read the, the text of the report as strongly favoring the public registry model. 
I'll, I'll read the language because it's so striking. I have the report in front of me. The, the report writes, the turning point, that is turning point with respect to these kinds of registries, is transparency to outsiders, not just law enforcement agencies. When the public can access and understand the data, it helps incentivize ethical business conduct, rebuild public trust and strengthen the social contract, and then goes on to say legitimate privacy concerns are there but, but can be addressed. The recommendation itself, though, stops short of calling for public uh, registries. It says uh, the standards, that is the international standards on this issue, should encourage countries to make the information public. And I was thinking about this as you were just discussing some of your frustrations with UNCAC, where with respect to many of the recommendations on things like whistleblowers, the language is, in UNCAC is a bit watered down. It doesn't mandate that countries take certain actions to protect whistleblowers. It says, for example, they should consider actions to protect whistleblowers. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit about why, given the, the strong language in the report itself about the advantages of having a public beneficial ownership registry, the, the actual recommendation that the committee put, puts forward says merely that the global standard should encourage countries to make the information public, as opposed to saying the global standard should call for the information to be public. This is a very correct observation, of course. The report is not a negotiated document. And we didn't have to put it to a vote in the end. But at the same time, uh, we have to word it in a way that it will be read. In the UNCAC, it was clear we wanted to have consensus in the end. So the strive for consensus watered down quite a few provisions. And it was tough to get it anyway. But on long term, we succeeded. For example, the implementation chapter, where we really, really thought about very specific wordings, did enable albeit many years later, a peer review process. Maybe not satisfactory to everybody, but it's the only one that exists. And that was already foreseen in the text of the convention. But it was phrased in a way that it didn't shy players away. So as you know, politically, uh, there, was a, there was also quite an opposition against the fact report. You know, many countries opposed it. And many countries will read this very critically. So... To make our report relevant to everybody, it needs to be read. So we have to phrase it in a way that it doesn't really polarize too much. You know, I mean, there are provisions in here uh, which are very polarizing. You know, not the one that you, you quoted. Others are very, very much more polarizing. And uh, there's, so we discussed these issues. You know, how do we phrase our recommendations that they will yield a way forward uh, that they will stand for progress, but that they, that they will not immediately close doors. Those who say, well, these are all radicals there uh, with this report. Uh, this is just uh, far out, you know, far-fetched. Uh, we will never get there. So in our efforts to make the report relevant, we also have to, have to be moderate in some issues. And the, the principle of transparency is very clear, and it comes in here, especially with the registry for, for, for beneficial ownership. That is clearly uh, based on transparency principle. So it needs to be public, of course. But it's strong, encouraged to be public. You know, those who want to understand it will. But decision makers still can say it's my own decision. I wasn't told by a report to do it. You know, I recognize the importance to make it public and to tear the principle and to provide for transparency. So this is, you know, this uh, political diplomatic uh, ways to phrase uh, a report. The report pushes in many areas uh, far beyond the status quo and uh, outlines very clearly where we shall go to. But it is not a maximizing piece. It is a help to understand what steps are necessary to improve the system and to enhance financial integrity for sustainable development. So let me ask you about just one more specific item in the report, and then I hope we can conclude our conversation by turning back to the very important issue that you mentioned at the outset of our conversation about taking the process forward and, and implementation. And, and the specific issue that I wanted to ask you about is contained in recommendation five, or the, there are two recommendations, 5A and 5B, both of which deal with international asset recovery, which is a very big and important issue. It's one that you referred to earlier in our conversation. Um, nobody knows exactly how, many, uh, how much money 
uh, is, is stolen and, and looted and, and hidden in various accounts around the world. People have come up with numbers. They all have Ilian at the end of them, but like no one really knows, but we know it's a lot. And yep. we know that the amounts that have been returned sound big. They also have Ilian at the end of them, but like probably only a very small proportion of the, the total amounts that have been stolen. And even when stolen assets are identified and frozen or, or targeted for freezing, the process often takes a very, very long time. It's very complicated because these um, kleptocrats and others are often quite sophisticated at figuring out ways to hide their money. And there are, as the report notes, due process considerations, like there are good reasons we don't just let the government seize somebody's money because somebody says the money's the proceeds of crime. So huge issues. The specific recommendations that the FACTI panel report advances here, there's nothing wrong with them, but they they seem a little bit puzzling in what seemed to me a bit of a mismatch between the nature of the problem and the specific recommendation. So there are two recommendations One in recommendation 5A is to create a multilateral mediation mechanism that would be voluntary to assist countries in the international asset recovery and return issue. And then 5B is to say when assets have been frozen or seized, um, rather than the current system, which is they just stay where they are until we figure out who they actually belong to, they should be transferred to multilateral development banks that would hold those, uh, that money in escrow accounts. I confess, I love the report, and I, I'm glad that it's focusing on this problem. I, w- I confess I was a bit puzzled by these, that these are the recommendations on this issue, because I'm not sure what problem, what big problem they're really solving. With respect to the mediation mechanism, I know there are all sorts of challenges and frustration about actually getting frozen assets returned, but it was not obvious to me how creating a mediation mechanism to create more conversation was going to help if the problem is like you actually need to complete a legal process before assets can be seized. And with respect to the escrow account, I mean, the report notes that sometimes banks that are holding unlawful assets are earning management fees on money that might have been stolen. And I I kind of get why that's not a great thing. Maybe if it turns out that the bank was in some sense complicit or negligent, they should have to waive the management fees or forfeit them. But boy, it seemed like an awfully complicated and cumbersome system to transfer all of these assets while the legal process is going on to multilateral development banks that now have to develop some system for managing them just because some banks are earning some management fees on possibly stolen assets and didn't really seem to get at the more fundamental problem that you know countries in the developing world or the global south have, been, have had their assets looted. So can you just unpack a little bit what's going on with it? Like, why did the FACTI panel... Um, which often, again, talks at very high level of generality in terms of the principles that should be adopted at a high level on the issue. This issue focused very specifically on a couple of really particular detailed recommendations that seemed kind of small and not that well matched with what I would think would, were the, are the more fundamental problems in the system. This is not recommendation five, consistent with two parts, and they are not very harmonious together. Uh, 5A is pretty vague, you know, voluntary mediation mechanism hosted by multilateral institution, set up by third party experts, you know, standards, because we don't know much here, you know, you know, research is not advanced. You know, I would like to set up a research project, pro- project to exactly look into these issues, and we will do that. So I think maybe if we talk in a year, uh, we will, we might have much clearer answers here than I can see today. I can see the huge lacuna here. You know, no, there's, there's not much data we have. So the 5B is very concrete. And I think it is a step to solution because you say, as you correctly said, uh, the transferred assets are located in an economy and they are frozen, but they still stay in the economy. You know, they still benefit a country where they are. So there is still an interest not to return them as quickly as feasibly. So if you have an immediate step of taking this money out, parking it to an escrow account, it doesn't at least benefit an economy where it has been unjustly invested or parked or whatever this is. So I think this is a very pragmatic solution. I think it was, I, I can see a lot of benefits here. If that can be a step forward and a step in the right direction, 
the money will at least, you know, be sort of liberated from a lot of interests until we find a clean solution and uh, restore it uh, uh, to where the money belongs to, you know, into the economies from which it has been uh, stolen or uh, taken away. So this shows how pragmatic we try to be on some of the issues. Plus, I think that's also not far-fetched. You know, this might be something uh, which can, could be a lower-hanging fruit to achieve that. Please. Listen, just to make sure I understand the causal argument as to why uh, the escrow solution would speed along the asset recovery process. So the idea is, let's say, allegedly corrupt actors in Malaysia have parked $100 million in JP Morgan. Those assets have been frozen. And the question is, like, at what point will the United States complete the legal process and transfer those assets back to the Malaysian government? The claim yeah. is that those, if, those, if that $100 million is sitting with the Asian Development Bank in Manila, rather than sitting frozen with JP Morgan in New York, the US government's Department of Justice will move substantially faster in getting those assets to the Malaysian government. That the idea? That could be an idea, yes. I think this, this might have been a reason for to come up with such a, an intermediate solution, you know, to bring it not back yet, but into the right direction, to take it at least out from where it has been parked and bring it into a more neutral ground governed by regional uh, development banks, you know, that have a very different interest than uh, JP Morgan. Uh, they're accountable to different people, to different kind of stakeholders uh, or shareholders in, in this one case. Shareholders, stakeholders in this case uh, is worth a discussion. So I think this is a realistic step forward to approaching a solution. This makes, makes sense to me. Yeah. And as I said, you know, I don't, you know, I, I feel a little bit a little bit uh, shy to go too much into this issue here because we don't have to just not, not, not enough facts. But, you know, there it might be some motivation or at least inertia uh, to start the process of repatriating from the country where the assets are located and parked. And if we make the first step easier, bring the, the assets halfway into an escrow account, uh, that might uh, facilitate and speed up the process. It's, it's certainly it's, an intriguing idea. I'll confess a, a bit of skepticism because my impression is that the speed with which the Department of Justice, U.S. Department of Justice moves in these cases is not really that sensitive to the interest of the bank where the assets are frozen. But as you say, uh, we don't have a lot of facts in this area, and it's, it's certainly uh, an intriguing idea. I know we've already talked for longer than we originally planned, partly because you have so much interesting stuff to say and the, and the panel report is so rich. I'm reluctant to impose your time even further, but I do think it would be a mistake to conclude our conversation without having a chance to circle back to the very important issue that you highlighted early in our conversation, and that's the issue of implementation or carrying this forward. Because as you know, as well as anybody, given your long diplomatic career, there are so many actual international conventions to say nothing of the hundreds of reports and documents and Blue Ribbon Commission uh, panel reports and all this stuff that um, contain all sorts of interesting ideas and all sorts of interest, interesting information, uh, but then often don't go anywhere, right? People put all their energy into producing the convention or producing the document, and then it's not necessarily carried forward. And whether you agree with all the recommendations or not, uh, the Facti panel report, which again, I've had the opportunity to look at, is full of rich and interesting information that could certainly provide the foundation for a conversation about these very important issues. But the risk is that after it gets announced, there's some fanfare, a few specialists like me will we'll take a look at it because we're interested. But then, you know, it, the, the risk is that it doesn't go anywhere, that it becomes one more in this pile of reports that you can find if you Google something online, but that won't achieve the, the objective of the high-level panel, and that's getting uptake on these issues, serious uptake by governments, international organizations, and others that have the power to actually do something about these issues. So I would love it if you could talk more about the thinking in the Facti panel and beyond for carrying this forward. What are the next steps? You've got the report, you've got these 14 recommendations, which are really more something more like 28 recommend or 30 recommendations when you break out the subparts. What's next for the Facti panel and its report? How would you like to carry this forward? 
Well, I guess the, the, the General Assembly will first recognize the report, one way or the other. It will not adopt it, but it will refer to the report in some way which will uh, increase its, its legitimacy. This is the first step. It's important. And then it's going to be there. And then, you know, then it will depend on how strong the advocacy effect and power of the report is and those who advocate for it. You know, you have seen, for example, uh, when the report was introduced, it was introduced by heads of states, heads of governments. So they all put something at stake. They can be held accountable. You introduced a report. Now, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to put it into the drawer? Are you going to try to see whether you can implement some in your own uh, sphere of influence? So, and this is, this is the, what, what we need to do now is, you know, bring as many people into the sphere of the report as possible. You know, we have a handful. We have our two uh, co-chairs. We have a, a good number of, of uh, political decision makers who are still active, who are not out of power, still active, who still can do something. And now we can, you know, it will, the report will, in many areas, break new grounds, fill lacunae, in others just explain how existing provision need to be implemented, to which we have signed up already. I mean, if you look at UNCAC, is always for me, you know, my orientation point. And UNCAC is very incompletely implemented. So hopefully our report will also explain how to implement UNCAC better, the provisions of UNCAC. You know, 185 countries have ratified UNCAC. You know, so it's a really global instrument. So if all of these 185 countries implement UNCAC, you know, we will reduce the problem of illicit flows dramatically and corruption, but they haven't done it. So this report, again, makes UNCAC more relevant. You know, 20 years ago, those decision makers of today have not negotiated UNCAC. You know, they have not been yet political players in many things. So somebody has to, to advocate the convention to them and tell them why they should, they should finally uh, implement it. So this report is a reminder, a clarification. It pushes borders. It describes the urgency, it, uh, it recalls available numbers and the environment for which these numbers have relevance. And it always and it highlights that there is something which is worthwhile implementing, which is the SDGs. So in our fight, when we think, how can we raise the money to implement the SDGs? There are many provisions here. You can say, look at this, you know, this will help you. This will help increase revenue for states, which then could be made available. You know, not that much an idealist that think that all the money which will be raised additionally will be made available for the, for the SDGs. So that's the next process, of course. But at least you need the money to make it available. And this report just shows how we can increase uh, revenue for member states uh, to, uh, to implement the SDGs. You know, the MDGs were, were imposed on our member states. They were not negotiated. You know, they were thought up with some brilliant minds, and then they were sort of accepted uh, because their normative power was so strong. And they became sort of the beacon. Also, they were not negotiated. So the SDGs are much more precious because they were negotiated uh, by the whole global community and adopted by consensus. So it has a totally different status. But, you know, we have to continue working to make sure that they are not forgotten the system has to be looked at holistically from all different angles uh, brought to the center, which is not articulated vertically in detail, but which is defined by values, by principles. And I think in this context, the FACTI panel can be very really useful. But as I said, it's up to us uh, to, to work with it now, to run with it. We have a tool in our hands uh, which can contribute if we manage to build the convincing narrative around it. Well, thank you so much. I think that's a great point on which to end our conversation, the importance of exhorting everybody who cares about these issues to carry the conversation forward using the kinds of information and recommendations developed in reports like the Facty Panels report, and as you emphasized several times, and as a researcher, I have to make sure I highlight this, the need to, for a better understanding and more research and more information to help shape uh, policies that will respond effectively 
to these global challenges. So thank you so much. Uh, this has been another episode of Kickback, the Global Anti-Corruption Podcast. My name is Matthew Stevenson, and I'm just so grateful to have been able to have on the podcast today uh, Thomas Stelzer, who is the Dean of the International Anti-Corruption Academy, or IACA, in Austria, and who also served as a panelist on the United Nations High-Level Panel on International Financial Accountability, Transparency, and Integrity for Achieving the 2030 Agenda, or more easily, the FACTI panel. The FACTI panel report, the full report and the executive summary are available online. And I highly recommend that all of our listeners uh, check these out and read them carefully. There's a lot to discuss and chew over as we carry the conversation forward. So uh, Thomas, thank you again uh, so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today on the podcast. Great pleasure. Thank you very much. That's it, another episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. If you like what we do, please recommend us to your friends, family, or whoever else might be interested in listening about anti-corruption. If you want to get in touch with the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Twitter, at KickbackGAP. We hope you enjoyed the show. Until next time.